0: During the Advent season, we once again pause to reflect upon the greatest gift mankind has ever received the hope of liberation from sin, death, and the tyranny of man. This sermon focuses on the actual result of the promise of victory that was given to Adam in the Garden of Eden. This is the fourth and final sermon in a four part series. Our old covenant reading coming from Isaiah and chapter 9. Isaiah and chapter 9, beginning in stanza 2 through stanza 7, but I will also be reading from Isaiah chapter 2, 2 through 4. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. Isaiah, writing of the sign of the Messiah, tells the people this. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. That was multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. They joy before thee according to the joy in harvest. And his men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood. But this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Isaiah also writing in his second chapter, And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways. And we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations and he shall rebuke many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. John, in John's epistle, John chapter 3, beginning verse 1 through verse 16, with the same spirit, the apostle writes, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Thus far is the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word. The grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Now the anticipation and the promise of the coming Messiah as the liberator of mankind and the restorer of the global order, was not enough. That anticipation was not enough. The promise had to be realized. The verbal prophecies of God throughout the time of the Old Testament prophets had to be crystallized into a reality. The Word of God, in other words, had to be applied to the real world of time and history. God's anticipation of the coming Messiah had to become a reality And that reality had to be realized in time in the confines of history. Otherwise, the promise, the word of God, the anticipation throughout the types and figures of the Old Testament meant nothing if it was not actually realized in time and in history. Because words in and of themselves mean nothing. What we say has consequences Because they reflect not only what we think, but what we believe. And this is why the scripture states that by our words, we are either justified or by our words, we are condemned. So words have meaning. Words have consequences. The anticipation of the Christ as the light of the world and the desire of nations, which was a divine promise by the God who cannot lie, had to be satisfied by the reality of Christ's coming. The Savior had to finally and actually manifest himself within the confines of time, space, and history, and then had to be applied to those whom he came to redeem. So there had to be a reality to the anticipation and to the promise. The eternal word had to become the word made flesh. Within the Council of eternity, God had taken a covenant oath within his own Godhead that his promise was sure and the application of it would be forthcoming when it was the proper timing. And this is why John says, and the word was made flesh. It had to become flesh. Within the counsel of eternity, God had to make that word a reality finally in time and in history. What God had stated from the very beginning is that which he would accomplish and then apply to the situation to men and nations. Note how the apostle to the, the Hebrews puts it. He puts it this way. In Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 11 and following, he says, And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so... After he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, in other words, the unchangeableness of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which entered into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us, entered even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And what he is saying is, Jesus came As a result of the promise, he had to come to solidify and manifest that promise that God had promised before the earth was ever made. So when Jesus was born in in Bethlehem of Judea, God's promise was finally translated into a physical reality to be applied at the proper time. Children, I will put it to you this way. If your daddy said to you one day, I am going to buy you a bicycle. And then he kept saying, I'm going to buy you a bicycle you're going to have a bicycle, you're going to have a bicycle, and then you never got that bicycle, what good was the promise? But if your daddy said to you, I'm going to buy you a bicycle, and one day that bicycle appeared, that was the realization of the promise, of the words. And that's what God is saying. He's promising the Messiah will come, and then when Jesus came, the promise was realized. The realization of the incarnation would be according to God's perfect timing as the scripture states by the Apostle Paul to the church at Galatia, but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive, finally, once and for all, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And so in the process of time, according to the divine will of God, Jesus breaks forth into history. Think about that. He breaks forth into history. And once that happened, the world would no longer be the same. The anticipated light of Genesis chapter 1 had finally shown itself. The light that Isaiah prophesied had finally pierced through the darkness of man's rebellion, sin, and hopelessness. Notice what he says. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. The incarnate Christ... And they that dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, no longer do they need to fear death because the shepherd had come. Upon them Had the light shined, the consolation of Israel, and the desire of nations had finally appeared in time and in history in reality. The mystery, however, of the coming of the promised Messiah was that he broke forth into history not as a victorious deliverer, but rather as a helpless baby. That was the mystery although God himself in his incarnation was the king, he first had to become the suffering servant. And Isaiah anticipated that as well in Isaiah chapter 7. Beginning in verse 10, we see this here, that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name God with us, Emmanuel. So he was already anticipated that he would finally come. Paul explains to the church at Philippi that He had to become a servant, a babe, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 and following, but let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, the sovereign king of the universe, in other words, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation. He put himself in that feeding trough and took upon him the form of a servant, made in the likeness of men, not like men, but in the likeness of men, very different than men, And yet in the likeness of men, being found in fashion as a man, he then humbled himself. But not only did he humble himself, he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, which signified that he had to become a curse. To becoming obedient to the death of the cross, not on the cross, but of the cross, he had to become a curse. And it was essential that the Lord came as a little child in order to show us that we too had to become his little children because of the pride of man, because of the pride of Adam. We had to come before him as little children, not as prideful individuals, but as humble men, as humble women, boys and girls. And so God, in his infinite wisdom, breaks forth into history as, as a humble little child, in abject humility, to confound the proud, to confound the mighty, to confound those of haughty disposition, Even as the Apostle Paul tells the church at Corinth, and if you know anything about the church at Corinth, they were full of themselves. Oh, they were full of themselves. But God had chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God had chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and the things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, so that no flesh should glory in His presence. The purpose of the Savior was to humble us by giving us an example of what humility is all about. And this is the way God works. He doesn't work through riches, the riches of men. He certainly doesn't work through the carnal wisdom of men or the might of nations. He works through the simplest means, the baser things, the humble things, the things of the peasantry, things that are despised to bring to naught the things of this world that set themselves up as something when they are in fact nothing. And this is why we should fear no man, because man's pride, man's wisdom, man's hubris means nothing to God. In the symbolism of a little child, God gives mankind a moment of pause to consider its innocence. And although he came to ultimately show himself as the victorious conquering king, he starts out as a little child so that we might follow that pattern of innocence and wonder. Isaiah alludes to this idea of childlike faith, which is what Jesus exhibited throughout his life. He tells us that the example of a little child will lead all those who are called of God in Isaiah chapter 11. And notice through Isaiah and through all the prophets, these anticipations. Isaiah chapter 11, one and following, and there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor, and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb and the leper shall lie down with the kid and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And notice the last phrase, and a little child shall lead them. And this is why Jesus made it such a point when he walked upon the earth to use little children to symbolize his people, to symbolize those who had faith, childlike faith. Notice Matthew 18. Beginning in verse 2, And Jesus called a little child unto him, and set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily I say unto you, Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. But whosoever shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged upon his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Children are the examples given to us as to how we are to behave. Meek before God. Meek before one another. But bold as lions before men. And These are strong words leveled against all those who are proud and arrogant. And what is important about this indictment, it is against those professing religionists, the Pharisees. They were so full of knowledge. They were so full of themselves. God is condemning them by putting a little child in their midst. Mark and Luke also recount the event in Mark's Gospel, chapter 10 and Luke's Gospel, chapter 18. Notice, Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. And he took them up in his arms, and he put his hands upon them, and he blessed them. In Luke's account, he says, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, shall in no wise enter therein. In other words, there's no way unless you become as little children, humble before God, as babes before God, even as the babe in the manger. And as a babe in the manger, Jesus graces the world. And by this entrance, he shows himself an example. But this entrance, even the entrance as a humble baby, was not the end all of his work. A simple entrance into the world meant nothing. Without the action of the Savior's work in its application as a result of him coming as a babe in the Incarnation, it still would remain without effect. Knowledge that is considered true knowledge must show itself in action. There's no action behind doctrine unless that doctrine is shown forth in the reality of the world. Even the Roman Stoic understood that actions had to follow words. He understood That actions had to follow words. So the incarnation in and of itself meant nothing. Christ had not atoned yet. Christ had not suffered yet. Marcus Aurelius in his meditation says this. The best indication for one's philosophy is based not on what a man says, but what he does. For Aurelius, a pagan, action was the only truth. Today far too many professing christianity those professors of christian faith believe that they are humble yet much of their actions speak volumes to the contrary because we're so intellectual in these days and so full of wisdom as we think full of knowledge but true knowledge if it is genuine shows itself in the manifestation of that knowledge in humility true knowledge always shows itself in action If there is any sincerity behind the new birth, or in this case, the incarnation of the Son of God, the progression goes something like this. Doctrine precipitates knowledge. Knowledge precipitates understanding. And understanding precipitates action, which is according to doctrine. And that must end in humility and love toward God and love toward the brethren. The tree is always known by its fruit. If, however, there is doctrinal knowledge without the development of action according to that knowledge, then it's obvious that there's no understanding. And this is why the Apostle Paul so clearly said knowledge in and of itself puffs up. The empty declaration of doctrinal knowledge is actually nothing other than a vehicle to puff up one's own ego. The new birth and all of its character traits are to be employed in action if it is to be genuine, and that action must be humble before God, humble before brethren, and then bold as lions before men. Show me a man in service to God and his people who actually does something for the edification of the church or builds something for the kingdom of God and I will show you a man that knows something because we are known by what we do. Not only by what we say, hopefully what we say will be followed by doing something. Too many armchair generals, bloggers, Facebook pontificators, lawyers and know-it-alls who are void of actually accomplishing anything are merely puffed up, as I put it, windbags. Show me a man by his works. Show me a man by how he serves others. So again, to reiterate, as concerning the Incarnation, if there was only the anticipation and commission of Genesis 1, the promise of Genesis 3, the cutting of the covenant of Genesis 15, and the realization of the Incarnation in 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 Matthew and Luke, without its application there can be no salvation. So the incarnation is just the beginning. It's not the end all. If Christ was incarnate and then never went to the cross, never rose again, the incarnation then means nothing. And so God anticipates in Genesis chapter 1. He verbally solidifies his promise in Genesis 3. He shows exactly how he's going to bring it to pass in accordance with his covenant model in Genesis 15. It is realized in the incarnation. And then, in order to bring it into real action, he actually gives His only begotten Son to His chosen people, according to John 3.16. And this is why John 3.16 is so powerful. Notice what it says. Listen carefully to what it says. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Notice, He gave. Jesus was not only born of the Virgin by the Spirit of God, He was given as a gift To the children of promise without seeking anything in return. What could we give? What could anyone give in return to the son? Herein is the action. Herein is the action behind the anticipation, the promise and the guarantee. Christ was actually given. He was given to his elect in an actionable fashion, which had real efficacy. What is more astounding is that the Son of God, notice, God's only Son, was given to become a curse, only to be sacrificed, not for people that loved Him, but for people that hated Him, and who were at war with Him, and who were sinners against Him. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Now, simply because the action here is focused upon and its ramifications considered, it is no less important and critical to consider the motive. Why? What was the motive behind God giving the Christ? The motive is as simple as the day is long, love. For God so loved the cosmos. The thing that he created in Genesis chapter 1, when he said over and over, it is good. He so loved the thing that he created that he gave a reality of redemption. For God so loved, he loved immensely and immeasurably as only God could. And the only way to explain this is to go back to one of the most poetic pastors of our time and of all time, Charles Spurgeon. He explains it this way. The love of God is a very wonderful thing especially when we see it set upon a lost, ruined, guilty world. What was there in the world that God should love it? There was nothing lovable in it, especially because of the fall. No fragrant flower grew in that arid desert. Enmity to him, hatred to his truth, disregard to his law, rebellion against his commandments, those were the thorns and briars which covered the wasteland but no desirable thing blossomed there. Yet, God loved the world, says the text, so loved the world that even the writer of the book of John could not tell us how much, but so greatly, so divinely did he love it that he gave his son, his only son, to redeem the world from perishing and to gather out of it a people to his praise. Quote. The action resulting from the motive authenticated The motive. It made it real. It made it tangible. It made it measurable. Without the action of the giving of the Son, the love of God becomes meaningless. I love you, but I'm not going to give myself for you. Or to you. I love you, but I'm not going to serve you. I love you, but I'm not going to forgive you. I'm not going to embrace you. No. I love you, and therefore I forgive you. I love you, and therefore I embrace you. I love you, and therefore you are my brother. For God so loved the world. Divine love is always actionable. And so whenever someone declares something to someone, like love or devotion, loyalty or friendship, it must be coupled with action. God was motivated by his love, and that motivation caused him to act. His motivation was authenticated by his action, and that action was the forgiveness of sins by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now consider some of the practical aspects of this reality. First, within the confines of marriage, the idea of love becomes meaningless if it is not actionable. Biblical love means sacrificing oneself or other. It is authenticated in actionable events. It is not merely concepts carefully crafted by certain sentences. Jesus tells his disciples that if they love him, their action must be ethically conformable to his commandments. Jesus tells Peter that if Peter loves him, he must take the action of educating and shepherding the sheep of God's pasture. That means shepherding them, no matter what. Protecting them, no matter what. Guiding them, no matter what. And loving them, no matter what. Within the confines of Christian forgiveness. If one forgives in word and not actually, then the words are meaningless. Within the confines of kingdom advancement. If one professes to be concerned with the advancement of God's kingdom and the proclamation of the crown rights of King Jesus in word only, but takes no action in its behalf, then their words are meaningless. Within the confines of brotherly kindness. If one says that he loves his brother, but does not go out of his way to minister to that brother, no matter what, then that love toward that brother is meaningless. It means nothing. Within the confines of walking in the light, as he is in the light. If any should hate his brother without a cause, then he cannot truly be walking in the light of the Christ of God. And that's what John is all about in 1 John 2.9. He that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. And then finally, within the confines of worship, If any man says that he worships God in spirit and in truth and yet takes lightly the private and corporate worship of God, his testimony is meaningless and he does not the truth. And the list goes on and on and on. Consider first the source of God's divine love and the giving of His Son. This love, you think about this, God is love. He is the essence of love. So the love comes from the essence of what God is and who God is. The love comes from God himself. Wrap your mind around that for a minute. Again, Spurgeon, as only Spurgeon can explain, says this. Whence came that love? Not from anything outside of God himself. God's love springs from himself. He loves because it is his nature to do so. God is love. As I have already said, nothing upon the face of the earth could have merited His love, though there was much to merit His displeasure. This stream of love flows from its own secret source in the eternal deity, and it owes nothing to any earth-born rain or river. It springs from beneath the everlasting throne and fills itself full from the springs of the infinite. God loved because he would love, end quote. Now, secondly, consider the gift itself. It is not anything of the earth. For if it were from the earth, it would be common and earthly. But the gift that God gave was a gift which is beyond men. It is not natural. It is supernatural. It is beyond the earth because it was and is and forever will be the eternal Son of God. Again, as only Spurgeon can explain, he says, When God gave God for us, He gave Himself. What more could He give? God gave His all. He gave Himself. Who can measure this love? He did not give His Son, as you might do, to some profession in the pursuit of which you might still enjoy his company, but he gave his son to exile among men. He sent him down to yonder manger, united with a perfect manhood, which at the first was an infant's form. There he slept, where horned oxen fed. The Lord God sent the heir of all things to toil in a carpenter's shop to drive the nail, to push the plane, and to use the saw. He sent him down among scribes and Pharisees, whose cunning eyes watched him and whose cruel tongues scourged him with base slanders. He set him down to hunger and thirst amid poverty so dire that he had not where to lay his head. He sent him down to the scourgings and the crowning with thorns, to the giving of his back to the smiters and his cheeks, to those that plucked off the hair. At length, He gave him up to death, a felon's death, the death of the crucified. Behold that cross, and see the anguish of him that dies upon it, and mark how the Father had so given him that he hides his face from him, and seems as if he would not own him. Lama Sabachthanai tells us how fully God gave his son to ransom the souls of the sinful My God, my God, how hast thou forsaken me? Why hast thou forsaken me? He gave him to be made a curse for us. Gave him that he might die, the just for the unjust. Why? To bring us to God. To bring us to God. Yet, the gift was not simply the gift of a son. It was the gift of his only son. It was the gift of His only begotten Son. And this was the apple of God's eye. There was no replacement for this Son. Christ was it. Christ was the preciousness of God's own soul. He was the Son of His love. He was the Son of His passion. To give the one, meant to give all. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Notice the word only. His only begotten Notice how this Son was not simply the only Son, but the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, and yet given for rebels. Now, we have to understand that the Son was not part of God, nor did He come from God, but was Himself God eternal. Well, at the same time, a separate personality. He was and is and always will be God, while at the same time, the Son of God, the only begotten of the Son. The Westminster Confession states it this way, in the unity of the Godhead, There be three persons of one substance, power and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Ghost, eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. And so there was never a time when the Son of God did not exist. He was the Son from all eternity, whereas the sons of men before they are born do not exist. Until they are born, only then do they exist. The Son of God was always with the Father. And you think about this. In all of eternity, before time is created, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is with the Father, enjoying their their fellowship, that, that pure, righteous, divine fellowship. One can only imagine, and not even be able to imagine, what kind of fellowship they had. He was always with the Father, enjoying the perfect holy fellowship only the divine Son can have with the Father. Solomon explains it so beautifully in Proverbs chapter 8 as he speaks of the Lord and his fellowship with his Son. Christ speaking, he says, the Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way before his works of old. I was set up from everlasting from the beginning wherever the earth was. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, was I brought forth. Well, as yet, He hath not made the earth, nor the fields, nor the highest part of the dust of the world. When He prepared the heaven, I was there. When He set a compass upon the face of the deep, when He established the clouds above, when He strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he gave to the sea his decree that the water should not pass his commandment, when he appointed the fountains of the earth, then I was by him as one brought up with him. And get this, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. The third point states that the giving of the Son was out of a love for the world, not just the nation of Israel, but the world beyond even as far as the physical creation itself. And so when Adam transgressed, he destroyed all that the Father had given him as a stewardship. Adam was the son of God that was to protect God and cultivate the Garden of Eden. When he rebelled, the entire global order, all those things that God said, it is good, it is good, Adam destroyed it. By rebelling just one time, the entire global order was plunged into chaos and darkness. Those things that God had called good was now defiled. It was made a curse, and the curse of God was now upon it. You see, God loved the world that he created. There can be no doubting that from the moment after the fall, according to God's anticipation, he promises to redeem that global order through his only begotten son, but he had to give his son. The world would not be destroyed, but rather redeemed. Yet this phrase in John 3.16 does not mean that every single person on earth would be redeemed. The world that John refers to is the world outside of the nation of Israel indicating that God was going to redeem both Jew and Gentile in order to restore the created order which he loved. The only way this would be possible is through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so John continues in his declaration and he says, whosoever believeth in him should not perish. There's a condition, those who believe, but no one would believe unless God intervenes and they would then be granted everlasting life. The eternal Son of God would bestow upon His chosen the grace of faith and the blessing of everlasting life. Notice again the consequence as a result of the action behind God's love. And this is a measurable action. Actions must be measurable if they are to be legitimate. One does not take an action in order not to see some result from that action. The result of the action of God's love is the sending of the Son for the measurable application of the new birth. And even here, We have an action. It is the activity of God, the Holy Spirit, granting eternal life by taking the action of indwelling the redeemed and then applying the atoning efficacy to the saint. God is all about action. He doesn't just say something and then not do something. He takes action. Action is always behind what God says. The new birth of God, the new birth that is given by God, the new birth is God's activity upon a soul for the express purpose of seeing a measurable result. He doesn't just save you to sit there, because that action of redemption must have a measurable action coupled to it. In other words... Professing Christians can measure the reality of God's action upon themselves by assessing what their character traits are, how they view the world around them, how they treat one another, and how they serve the Lord in the advancement of his kingdom and the benefit of his church, the body of Christ. Finally, note the act of giving. He gave. This implies the possession of a thing. God gave Jesus to us. He gave Jesus to his beloved elect. In other words, we possess the Christ. We are not the Christ. We are not gods. But we possess the indwelling of the Christ. We possess the indwelling of the Christ. We possess the indwelling of the Spirit of God who dwells in us and works in us and in the world so as to glorify his name and advance his kingdom. And we, in turn, not only is Christ given to us, but we, in turn, we are given to him just as he is given to us. Once again, the great Spurgeon says this, God gives to every man that believes in Christ everlasting life. The moment thou believest, there trembles into thy bosom a vital spark of heavenly flame which shall never be quenched. In that same moment, when thou dost cast thyself on Christ, Christ comes to thee in the living and incorruptible word which liveth and abideth forever. God gives his Son. And in turn, Jesus gives us the waters of everlasting life, which is symbolic of the word applied by the Spirit. Notice what Jesus says in John four fourteen. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the waters that I shall give. There it is again. Give. I'm going to give these things to you. It's all about God giving to us so that we might give back to God. But the waters that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The gift of Christ translates into the gift of everlasting life by the Spirit, which is a measurable reality. But there's something more, one more thing. As a result of the gift of the Son, there is the gift of power by the Son. Let me say that again. As a result of the gift of the Son, there is the gift of power by the Son. Notice what John tells us. In John 1, nine. speaking of Jesus, he was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power. There it is again. He just keeps giving. He just keeps giving and giving and giving. The Christ of God, the God of creation, gives and he gives and he gives as an example of how we are to give and give and give until we're, we're so, so poured out that we can't give anymore. And once we're poured out, empty vessels, whereby we cannot give any more. He calls us to give more. And what He does is He fills us once again with the consolation that comes from Christ so that we're able to give more until we're poured out again and then He fills us and He gives more and we give more. It's about giving. To them gave He power to become the sons of God even to them that believe on His name which were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The sonship of the believer confers upon them not only the authority to be the children of God, but it also confers upon them the authority to take dominion over the wicked by stripping them of their rebellious dominion headship, by giving them the gospel which cuts both ways, life and death. This is what is intended in Luke chapter 10, verse 19, when notice again, Jesus gives us something again. Behold, I give unto you power. He's always giving. I give unto you power. And this power is to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing by any means should hurt you. The giving of the Son. And so, beloved, as we contemplate the giving of the Son, may we further contemplate that He is the greatest gift the world has ever known. The giving of the only begotten of the Father to the people of His love for the advancement of his kingdom and the edification of his church, the body of Christ. May God be pleased to bless us with this knowledge that we would, as he did, give. Amen.